So when we first started, our dream was to make $60,000 a year. Um, we thought that if we could just get revenue to 60 k that we would be able to survive and we could have our own company and we could do our own thing. And I remember talking to my dad back then and he said, what are your aspirations for this? And I said, just to get to 60,000. And he's like, you're not thinking big enough. Like you should be thinking about like getting to like a multi-million dollar business. I was like, dad, you don't know what you're talking about. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like this is really important. Welcome to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by allowing you a glimpse into the creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Welcome, everyone, to episode two of Louder Than Words. Thank you for tuning in. It's great to have you here. My name is John Benini. And today I'm joined by Chris Savage, co-founder and CEO at Wistia, uh, a complete video hosting platform built for businesses, uh, not cats, as their Twitter profile denotes. So Chris, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so before we get into anything, I just mentioned Twitter profile and uh, I saw in yours, you actually list as one of your one of your obsessions, IPAs. Uh, I'm a big connoisseur of the India, uh, India Pale Ale myself. So what are your uh, what are your favorites? Um, <clears throat> I would say these days I'm leaning towards the, the founders yeah. um, and there's a Notch IPA that's a local one that I really love um, and uh, Probably the Pretty Things Metal Lark. Oh, see, I've never had these. No, I've never had these. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Dogfish, 90-Minute IPA. That's probably my all-time favorite. And uh, we have some local guys here. I think they're in Massachusetts now, Two Roads. Um, Okay. They should sell that up there. They have a Road to Ruin double IPA, so if you see that, uh, grab it for yourself. Um, oh, I think I've seen that, actually, yeah. yeah. I don't think I've had it, but... They okay, make good cool. stuff. They've only been around for like two years, but... Uh, cool. But that's cool, either cool. here nor there. We could probably do a whole podcast on IPAs, but we'll save that for another time. Um, well, we'll get, ten, we'll, get ten, we'll get five to ten minutes into it, and it'll be very clear I don't actually know that much. <laughs> yeah, right? Five <laughs> so to ten let's minutes. Not do that. <laughs> um, so let's not So why don't you tell, tell us about uh, Wistia and, and yourself? Um, sure. Basically, uh, Wistia is uh, a company, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people use video better on the web. Um, we're trying to help businesses be more human. Um, we think that video is like an amazing way to add personality and authenticity, and um, remind people that you know, remind your audience that like every company is made of real people, uh, and that that connection. You know, we're hardwired to make that connection. Um, so <clears throat> that, I realize that's a little bit of a heady way to describe what we do, but basically the product is, um, hosting and analytics designed for marketers that let you see how people are watching your videos, what they're skipping, what they're rewatching so that you can get insight into what's working and what isn't. And hopefully you can make better content. Um, we have a lot of customization tools, integrations with other marketing platforms. We're basically trying to make it as easy as possible for anybody who's marketing with video to make better video and know that it's work and know how it's working. Um, the company is 35 people based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I started it almost nine years ago, um, with, uh, one of my best friends from college and, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I love what I do. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And I think one of the things that I've always admired most about Wistia is you guys have this really unique, almost quirky culture, personality, sense of humor about the brand. Yeah. Um, 
but what I find most impressive is how consistent that is across every channel. Um, support emails that I've sent, Twitter, uh, your website, your videos. Even even there was a couple. Uh, I don't know if there was a couple weeks ago, you guys sent out an email with like a, a the wrong link in it, and there was a follow up email within like a, an hour or so, and it was just totally self deprecating. It was funny, and I don't even think I saw the original email. I just saw the second one, and I was like, I don't yeah. even care what they screwed up. Now I have to check this out. So yeah. my question is, you know, how does the culture of Wistia contribute to the product, or does it? That's a great question. Um, I think the culture contributes a huge amount to the product, um, and I think it contributes a huge amount to the brand. Um, you know, we're trying to build a really human company, and to do that, uh, it's hard sometimes because you have to be vulnerable and you have to say when you've screwed up, and you have to share your things that you're learning. And our, you know, the kind of the thesis here is actually early on. Um, we weren't always as clear about who, how big the company was, who worked here, what we were interested in, what we were screwing up. Um, we tried to act more like a big company. And then at some point we realized that just being really transparent about like who we were mattered and people cared about that. And so it's allowed us to invest more and make the priority be, yeah, we're going to be, we're going to show how human we are. Um, and humans are quirky and weird and, um, you know, passionate. And so we just try to let that all come through and uh, it has a huge effect. Has a huge effect on our content, on our website, on the emails we send support, on um, our advertising creative, on everything. Culture is one of the things that I think in, in service-based industries, it's easy to say, that, oh, that contributes to our service. The people, uh, our customers love our people. They love the way they're treated. They love the accessibility and the organization. But with a product, it can tend to there can tend to be a disconnect there. And you guys have really nailed, I think. Um, how to bridge that in a software product. So now we'll back it up a little bit. Um, so you've been doing video and video production and all that sort of thing for a long time now, right? It's been a long time, yeah. I So I started in college. Um, I had <clears throat> played around with video before that. Um, and you know, in high school, I, I made like bizarre video games and uh, you know, that were really just being like, kind of like choose your own adventure videos that I animated myself that are in, horribly embarrassing that I wish I could find. But in any case, um, <laughs> was GoldenEye 007 not enough for you? You had to make your own games? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Like, the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then in college, um, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And at some point, I admitted to myself that I wanted to like dream really big and I wanted to try to make movies and that was a really scary thing to admit to myself but I said fuck it like I'm going to do it um, and it turned out to be something that I was really passionate about it was really easy to work on and so I did that for like two and a half years in school um, and then a year out of school and then it was 2006 I graduated in 2005 but 2006 that we actually started Wistia which was totally focused of course on video also. And how did you and your co-founder, you, you alluded to him earlier, uh, Brendan Schwartz, how did you guys meet? So we lived in the same freshman hall at Brown um, and hung out like uh, pretty early on um, and continued to stay friends through school. And, you know, we were, we were pretty, we were very good friends, but in a big group of friends. And then actually it was probably my junior year um, and his junior year too, that a lot of our friends went abroad. And that was when we got a lot closer because so, so many people were gone. Um, and Brendan was building, like, on, it's actually crazy he was building. He was building at the time, 
like basically a blogging platform. But um, this is 2003, and there were not a lot of blogging platforms out there. And he, I don't even know that it ever got, I think it got released to the world and people could use it, but we did have a launch party for it um, and a lot of other stuff. And he just made this thing single-handedly and we all used it. <laughs> and it was, it was very, very cool to see that. And so he and I were always like scheming on things. Like we were always scheming on like companies to build, products to build, stuff like that. Um, and it took us until, you know, a year after graduation to actually give it a shot. And what did those conversations sound like? Because those are, you know, I think anybody who's, uh, you know, fancies themselves as an entrepreneur has had those conversations, whether with a coworker, a friend. Um, and those are a lot of fun. So what did those conversations or series of conversations, what did those sound like when the idea of Wistia or whatever that was, was hatched? Yeah, so the first, the stuff that turned into Wistia um, was really just like us remarking on how quickly technology was changing. So, um, <clears throat> 2006, when we started, we, it took us probably six for the six months before we decided to do Wistia, we were talking about this all the time. And, um, <clears throat> we went to a friend's wedding. We we're talking about how, um, YouTube was becoming like more and more popular, still the early days of YouTube and how it was so easy for anybody to get videos online. And it's funny, that seems such like an easy thing today, but back then it was actually really hard. And I had felt that pain more than the average person because I had made movies and I wanted to put, instead of just making a, a DVD that was my reel of my work, I wanted to have a website that people could go to and watch that stuff. And you spend all your time as a filmmaker trying to keep everything in the highest quality possible and then you go to the web and I, you have no idea at that time, we had no idea like, what technology should you use? Is it going to buffer? Are people going to have QuickTime? Are they going to have RealPlayer? Um, if you can get something to convert into Flash, like that was kind of rare. <laughs> and um, then YouTube comes along and basically just made it super easy. And it turns out that there were a ton of other companies that also made it really easy. And they were all using the same open source tools to do the video encoding, which meant it was now going to be free to do video encoding to encode video to Flash from like uh, many different formats. And that meant you weren't going to have to be technical to use online video. So we were having conversations about that because we said, what's going to happen if video is everywhere? You know, what are the new applications that are going to occur? Um, and then we also just thought, because this is so early, like there's not a lot of experts out there yet. Like maybe if we jump into this now, like we would have a shot at maybe, you know, being some of those experts. Yeah, sort of being in there when the ground is still fertile and, you know, over-indexing and having the product out. That's, that's, it's almost like Woody, the Woody Allen quote, half of, or 80% of success is just showing up. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's not showing up. It's showing up at the right time. So it sounds like totally, you guys did yeah. that. <laughs> so what, yeah, I mean, I think it's... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, like, you know, the Apple Watch is about to come out, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so far, you know, the initial generation of apps for that are going to be extensions of iPhone apps. Mm -hmm. But there's going to be some generation that is new that makes sense just as an Apple Watch app and nobody knows what it's going to be like. And so the, probably there's going to be a lot of successes that occur very that occur from by people who start um, making things right after this thing is released. I feel like it's like a similar thing, right? 
Sure. And I, and I don't think we've seen probably that level of innovation in a while from Apple because kind of going off the script here about Apple. But, um, you know, when the iPad came out, it's a very similar interface to the iPad. It's just bigger. Um, totally. So they haven't really come out with a new product line in so long. It, like you said, it, it is going to be exciting to see once the initial sort of rollout occurs, like what sort of applications can it have? Who, who, who builds the first native app to the, to the watch? That'll, that'll be super exciting. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. But so, anyway, back to, back to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what were your, you and Brendan, what were the original aspirations for, for Wistia back in 2006? Um, so when we first started, our dream was to make $60,000 a year. Um, we thought that if we could just get revenue to 60K, that we would be able to survive and we could have our own company and we could do our own thing. And I remember talking to my dad back then, and he said, what are your aspirations for this? And I said, just to get to 60000 And he's like, you're not thinking big enough. Like, You should be thinking about like, getting to like, a multi-million dollar business. I was like, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, this is really important. And then, of course, you know, I think like anything, your aspirations change when you get to – when you reach a goal. You're like, oh, I did that. Like, I didn't know I could do that. And then you dream bigger. Sure. Yeah, and and the early days of Wistia. So you know, everybody thinks of Wistia now as is the nice office in Cambridge, but the early days, not not from a product standpoint, but from a two best friends from Brown starting a company together standpoint. What was yeah. that? What was that like? Sort of paint that picture for us. Um, let's see. So the first couple months of work, uh, my family has a like summer house on Martha's Vineyard, and so. Brendan and I were like, all right, we're going to go work at this summer house because we don't know anybody there, and we're just going to do nothing but work all the time. And that, that was not the greatest plan because it – well, it was a pretty good plan because it actually rained a ton, and then when it got sunny, we could not help ourselves from going to the beach, um, <laughs> which is a sign of distractions to come. But in any case uh, – and then after that, um, my girlfriend and I, and I, who is now my wife, um, moved into a house that Brendan was living in that had uh, six bedrooms – and so there were actually 10 of us living in that house. Um, and uh, it was just basically like the cheapest. We wanted the cheapest thing possible for where we could live and work. And that house was it. You know, um, And Brennan happened to be living there, so it was pretty easy. And we would wake up and work out of Brennan's bedroom. Um, and everyone else would like have their commutes. And I would walk upstairs with my bowl of cereal and sit down. It was actually kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> who was your, after you and Brendan, who was your first hire? Like how long did that take and, and uh, who was it? Um, so the first hire after um, us was a guy named Ben who's still on the team um, who leads operations. And we met Ben probably 14 months after we started, I would say, or a little bit more than that, 15, 16 months. Um, and Ben, we met Ben at some meetup and he had been um, he had had his own startup that he'd sold um, to a small to another startup, and he was the CTO of that company. And then he'd left, and he was like looking for something new. And he saw what we were doing, and he was interested. And um, he actually worked for free with us um, for a while, like four four or five months, um, to help us like get the product farther along and. Uh, you know, close some more deals and deal with some bigger contracts. And he ended up making some introductions to people who would eventually be, you know, some of our only angel investors. So um, it was very cool. Did he come and uh, live in the house too? <laughs> um, I mean, he did work out of the house sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, it lived there though. It's it's funny though that that story is. It's so many startups um, have that similar trajectory where obviously you and you know you and Brendan and the founders of any company are, are making sacrifices early on. But it seems like every successful startup has that handful of people who came on that had no stake in the company that were found um, you know early on in the company that made a lot of sacrifices as well. Whether it was financial, whether it was benefits, you hear about guys leaving companies with full benefits to take on part time work at a company they believe in so it's it seems like every successful startup has those guys so it doesn't surprise me yeah. still with the company too yeah i think it's interesting because actually even now like you know we've grown a lot and we've found some success um and we've got a long way to grow in front of us um and you know being 35 people is is great but there's still people are still making sacrifices right like they're still making sacrifices with their time and like, you know, there are, there are things about growing an organization that are hard, that you have to change, you have to create process. And so there's some people who are living without process. There are other people who are going to use a new process. And I think that it's, um, I, I think it, we, it's easy to talk about like, oh, it's all figured out and like everything's great and like it's not hard. I think it's hard as shit. You know, we have, um, we have a lot of growth happening and it's extremely exciting, but it also means like, you're doing a job and you hand it up to somebody else and then you grow into this other role and, um, oh, now like customers are contacting us. and like, there's people that we're accountable to. Um, and that's, I think that's, it's hard. I mean, I, I think everyone's making sacrifices, I guess, my point. Yeah. You're constantly creating positions on the fly and, you know, having to train people probably quicker than, uh, you know, should occur. But uh, yeah, I, I think HR, you know, coming from a company myself, that's, that's had growth that almost, moves faster than we can handle. Uh, it, it, the HR stuff is probably the most important things that we do on a day in and day out basis, recruiting totally. and, and, and reaching out to people, training. And uh, so, yeah, I could certainly empathize with that. So, you know, what were some of the most notable, I guess, lessons or mistakes, whatever you want to call them, that helped you, you know, course correct uh, and, and make Wistia, maybe course correct is the wrong word, um, but adjust over the years to make Wistia the company that it is today? Um, so let's see, um, you know, one of the major ones was actually, I alluded to this earlier, but we, for a long time at the beginning, our team page had four people on it and it said management, like this is the management implying that there were other employees who weren't important enough to be on the team page. And, um, we were, I think it represented the way we presented ourselves at that time, which was, uh, yeah, we're a super serious, big company with like real, you know, all the people on this team have extreme pedigree, blah, 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 blah. And we were operating in that way when we cold called people and tried to sell them on stuff. And then, you know, what we found, what we discovered is that some of the first deals that we actually got were from people who knew that we were two people or four people, um, they knew that we were struggling and trying to find our way. And like, that was actually what was exciting. You know, it was like taking a bet mm-hmm. and knowing that they're getting something totally new. Um, like our second customer was a $2 billion company. The guy who signed up was the head of training there and he used Wistia for all internal training. And we met him at a meetup and I was talking to him five minutes before I realized that he could be a customer. I was talking to him about like, you know, the struggles of not getting customers and how hard that was and all this stuff. And he's like, Oh, I'm interested. And I remember vividly like sitting on my bed in my bedroom, like walking him through a demo and go to meeting, which we purchased just to walk him through it. So it would look like we were professional, you know, like, um, and then that really, that changed my perspective pretty dramatically on, uh, how we should present and build a company going forward. 
Um, I, you know, there's other examples that were pretty critical, but you know, I don't know how many of them you want. <laughs> uh, do you remember Wistia's first big moment? So, you know, when you felt, you know, this Wistia thing is, is going to work. This is, this is a thing. This is going to work out. Um, the moment that I thought it was going to work out was probably three and a half years in. Um, you know, we were just, I felt like we were kind of in this pit of sorrow, like for a long time with like a really great idea. And we could see this, this like light at the top of the pit, but we just had to claw our way out of it. And it, that was hard to do. Um, it was time consuming to find, it was basically, we had a lot of trouble finding the right customers. Um, you know, we would call into businesses all the time and we, and a lot of them were really interested, but they weren't using video or we weren't talking to the right person. And so about three and a half years in, we launched a new version of the product and, um, it was the first time that you could sign up for a trial without talking to somebody. And it was the first time you could pay with a credit card. And, uh, what happened is like within the, I don't know, day one, we had a customer sign up that we'd never talked to before. We're like, okay, this is cool. And then the next day that happened again. And then the next day we woke up and there was a deal that had come in from the night before from like someone in Europe. And then it just started to go. And when that started to happen and I realized that we had separated ourselves from the business, like that people could use sign up, use the product, figure it out, find it valuable, pay and not talk to us. Um, that's when I started to think, hey, maybe this, maybe this really could work. Yeah, so, so put yourself back to, and then it grew, obviously, to what it's become, and it's continuing to grow to what it you know, will become. But back to the kid who had aspirations of just you know, $60,000, could you have imagined, obviously, back then, probably not, but could you have imagined the success Wistia would go on to have? Uh, or Obviously, it sounds like your thinking was a little more modest back then. Yeah, I mean, it became more, it became bigger over time and it continues to get bigger. But I, you know, I think if, <laughs> uh, on the face of it, I would have said that I could have imagined it. But in the reality, no. Like, I think that um, I couldn't have imagined what it would mean to grow and have resources to take lots of risk and have resources to try to build like a significant company. Like it's a very different feeling. Um, and I think even now, like, you know, I look out, I'm like, Oh, what, what are the next like three or four years look like? Like how big of a company could we build? And like how, and can we build a company that I love working for and that people here love working for because they love the way that the work is being done. I mean, to me, that's kind of success is, is if you can keep making a really big impact but you can do that with people who care about their care about their work, um, care about how the work is done, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I I couldn't have imagined it. So, what are some of the decisions that you made? Do you think uh, similar, building off of one of the previous questions, that looking back, if you didn't do it, you wouldn't have become the company you are now. So, I would say maybe product. Aside, so maybe business decisions or the commitment to 
you know, content that you guys have, which uh, I think you guys probably have the most resourceful educational blog. Uh, I mean, it, it's got to be in the handful, uh, you know, in the marketing industry because it's it's video. Everything's hands on. It's visual, and it's super. It makes it breaks everything down to be super easy. So it could be the content. What do you think of the things that have built that you know have contributed to that growth? That without them, you wouldn't be the whiskey that everybody knows and loves now. Um. So I'm gonna say the first one is that like. Um, we hadn't, we wouldn't, we weren't actually using our own product in the right way. So this is not like a specific product decision. It's more of like, uh, a use of the product. Like we built it and we took guesses at how people would use it. And we had videos on our website that were hosted with Wistia, but we weren't truly trying to market ourselves with video. Mm. And once we started doing that, we like stole some developer time and made like some like built some things on top of the product that were totally separate just for marketing, like landing pages with email capture and you know content marketing and all this stuff. And as we started to do that, it totally changed our perspective on the product and it totally changed our perspective on how we should market ourselves. Um, I think if we had not done that, we would not be the company we are today because it like went through to everything that we do. Um, other decisions that we made. Um, I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of small decisions. I think that sure. have added up. Um, I think we always took a really long term view on the business, but also on people. Um, and we've really tried to invest in in creating a space where people can have a lot of autonomy and they can have a lot of growth and. Um, they can fail and try lots of different things. And we did that pretty early. Uh, I think if we hadn't done that, we would never, I don't know, we would definitely not have the company we have today. And I think also had we grown too fast in the early days, we wouldn't have built the conviction that just even surviving and en- was par- partially due to enjoying the work itself. Yeah, and 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 that time it, it, you spent growing, you probably learned a lot. And I know you mentioned there was like a three, three and a half year period where you were sort of, you know, there were times of like you know sorrow and is this going to work? But I would say that that's probably a helpful period, and it's probably something that many companies go through and and maybe have to go through. Would you agree with that? Is that a necessary evolution to kind of go through that stage of quote unquote roughing it? Yeah, I think definitely um, because that's where you build your conviction. And that's where you, that's when you have to make decisions when, um, every option seems like bad, you know? And like, uh, so you pick the decision that is actually aligns the most with your values. Um, and you just keep doing that. And like, at some point, like, I remember feeling like we have to build a company that we believe in. And even if we fail, like it won't be as bad if we didn't sacrifice on our values, but if we sacrifice on our values, then we'll probably regret it. Sure. Um, you recently published a blog post. Um, I think it was within the past uh, week or two. And you titled it Walk, Forest, Walk. And you had me at the title because Forrest Gump is my favorite movie of all time. So um, I, had uh-huh. to see, I had to see what that was all about. But, um, you uh-huh. know, and basically the whole idea behind it is, you know, how the ideation process can sort of get away from people when they, you know, don't work collaboratively or they run too far with an idea without sort of thinking of, you know, the necessary steps, the organizational value, the customer and things like that. So, and, and you guys offer a lot of autonomy. 
um, you know, as do a lot of uh, tech startups to their talent, uh, which which brings challenges like this. So how does that ideation process work at Wistia um, to write an article like that? You must have seen, obviously, in the past, you know, ideas get away from people, veer off path from yeah. solving, the, solving for the customer. Yeah. So, you know, kind of describe, I guess, that walk forest walk mentality. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is like um, – there's the, a lot of with a lot of creative work. I think sometimes you have a vision for what this something is, and you feel like you need to create the final result of that vision before people can give feedback on it. Um, and so, what we try to do is like share those proofs, share the minimum viable creative like a lot earlier, and get people to see your perspective on um, the creative endeavor that you want to that you want to work on. And I think it's an important thing to talk about because without it, you can iterate like by yourself over and over and over and over um, and not get that feedback and, you know, grow the giant forest gump beard and have everyone look at your thing that might be amazing, but might be like, why the hell are you running like so far? Kind of a weird thing. Yeah. Um, your, your opinion and actually doesn't matter a little bit. You kind of have to have that gut check with yourself. Yeah. And like, I think, um, it's I, I feel good and it was a good, good time to write that post because we actually don't have a lot of forest gumping anymore. Um, we're much more clear about like sharing things a lot earlier and um, having separate processes for for these different things. Um, two three years ago, we there was a lot of forest gumping and myself included would forest gump things like where um, you'd have some idea for something and you spend a huge amount of time on it and show it to people and they're like. Mm. Are you sure the most this is the most important thing? Like, are you sure that this is not gonna like, you know, conf, you know, this is, might be too weird or whatever? And then and you're, everyone, you're and super then you, defensive too, right? Because it's like your thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think we're st- we're still working to make those processes more clear. Um, but in general, yeah, it's just much more like sharing a lot earlier and. And also being responsible for who's who's the owner, you know, mm-hmm. um, it can be really easy for people to protect something and worry about it if they don't know who the owner is. And if they know who the owner is, then that person can take a risk. Um, and I think that that's really important too. Yeah, there's two sides to that coin too, because I've heard, you know, other tech employees or engineers kind of talk about how you know, well, you know, if if we get too many people involved. We get wrapped up in, you know, internal debate and this person thinks that and then nothing ever gets shipped. Um, and, yes. then there, and then there's your side where if you don't get the feedback you need right away, sometimes the whole thing can go off course. So yeah. I, I think there's, there's, there's definitely a happy medium because I've, I've experienced the same thing where you get so wrapped up in your own idea, you almost become, you know, averse to anybody else's feedback. You're like, no, 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 this is going to work. I've already went through this a million times in my own head. And then somebody yeah. says one thing that's just like, oh, man, I didn't think of that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I love that term, Forrest Gumping, and I hate business jargon so much that I'm all for having new words. So I'm going to I'm gonna help you out and try to get <laughs> that going. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Um, I appreciate that. So this is going to be a tough question. Uh, you know, being a startup founder, obviously you probably have a million different hats you wear on a day-to-day basis. So if you had to boil things down, like what's the most important activity you can spend your time on any given day? That is a hard question. Um <laughs> I would say um, the things that I try to spend my time on, like, you know, so my days vary like quite a bit to some degree. Um, But I think the overriding things that I try to spend my time on on are like thinking about the culture and nurturing the culture um, and thinking about trying to create the right systems to help the culture scale. Uh, Trying to think about like 
the high level, what the high level priorities for the future should be, um, and trying to think about what where our gaps are. You know, what are the things that if we had like one or two people who were focused on this totally new thing, um, helping to find those people, and then really just trying to to spread the vision through the company. Um, and yeah, it, that shows up in lots of different ways. That shows up in you know, this week I've had um, three all hands presentations for different reasons. Um, that shows up in emails. That shows up in collaborative work. Um, I don't know. I think the most important thing is is having a pulse of the business and a pulse of how everybody uh, feels and like how the work is going. And if you and if you know that that's in a good spot, then you can figure out like how much to put the gas down and how much to put on the brake. How much creative work do you still get to do or have time to do? Like, are you, do you still get to just, you know, put your headphones on, focus in and, and do any video editing or production or, or is that mostly like a recreational thing for you now? Yeah. I mean the video editing and production, I really do very little of, um, which is sad in some respects and incredible in others because people on the team who do it are far more talented than me. So, um, <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, and I, you know, I will, like, I get to live my creativity out like vicariously through other people and through the ideation process. Um, you know, that's, that's where, that's where it happens for me. And I actually, I love, like, I love the process of coming up with ideas and trying to push, push the envelope and like pioneer, like totally new things and then let other people execute them way better than I could. Sure. Yeah, it, it's it's a funny sort of evolution that takes place when you you know the company gets bigger, you get further removed from you know the activities that sort of you loved and why you built the company in the first place. But it's a great problem to have. No, it's better than the alternative. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I mean, I think it's also uh, you know it comes down to like how much trust you have in the company, like mm-hmm. it, within different people, like. Uh, and how willing are people to be really open on what they're doing and be open to new ideas and all that stuff. And like, I think if you can have that, then you can stay involved. And if you don't, then it's harder to do that. Sure. So I wanted to ask you this question because this, this, this is sort of drives me crazy when I see people, uh, a lot, whether it's forums, Twitter, you know, compare YouTube to Wistia. Obviously, it's, yeah. you know, YouTube is a content discovery platform. Wistia yeah. is video hosting, uh, robust yeah. analytics. However, marketers, you know, you know, now that everyone has sort of bought into content, right? Like so even yeah. in, in enterprise level companies, even insurance company, like they're they're doing content. They're filming video. They're writing blog posts. You know, yeah. they might even try to dip into podcasts. So you know, the executives may not quite understand, but they know that it's important. So they hire people or they hire agencies to do the work for them. But then the marketers are saddled with this expectation of virality. Okay, well, if we're going to blog, it has to get a lot of views. If we're going to do video, it has to get a ton of views. It has to go viral. It has to do this. Yeah. Um, so how should marketers navigate that balance between, you know, if I need max exposure, you know, so, you know, I can keep my you know leadership team, you know, uh, happy, then I need to go on YouTube. I need to get this thing out there in front of as many people as possible. You lose a lot of the analytics that you'd get with Wistia. You lose a ton of the features, the lead generation aspect of it, the overall quality, the support that you get. But then if you go with Wistia, you get all those things. So yeah. wh- how, how does a marketer sort of navigate that balance? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question, common question. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, you know, I think it, there's kind of like two different pieces I think you need to think about. The first one is, okay, so if is the only you know where where are the biggest problems for you as a marketer? 
Um, and if they truly are only top of funnel, then you're going to do different things than if you have like a funnel going already and there are, there is optimization or, um, there, there are like conversion is something that you care about. Then you're going to, you're going to do totally different things. Right. So, um, I think going viral is obviously everyone would love for their content to go viral. And that's obviously pretty rare. I think if you try it, you need to treat it in the, in the same way that you treat other social content. So, you know, put YouTube at the top of your funnel and put it next to Twitter and put it next to Facebook. And if you want, put it next to Instagram and Snapchat and uh, Meerkat and try to decide, you know, how, <laughs> how helpful all of these things are at getting eyeballs for you. And um, I think that virality is, is usually not predicated on the platform. It's predicated on the content. So if you have phenomenal content, you can have that content be anywhere and people will share it. Um, there are obviously places that are easier to share. Um, I think when you're thinking about the richer analytics, the conversion-focused stuff, um, basically anytime you want to drive a specific action, you know all of these social networks make it pretty hard to drive specific actions where you drive someone away from the social network, right? Like almost all of them say, if you want to drive people away from Facebook, if you want to drive people away from, from Twitter, like more people than are following you already, if you want to drive people away from YouTube, you have to pay to put advertising on your content that advertises back to your site. Um, and I think that the, the, it's just a totally different thing if you have content on your website and you're trying to get a goal to occur. Um, and if you're doing that, that's, w- that's where Wistia fits in. And I think that the interesting thing to note is even with uh, across the Wistia customer base, I think the number is like 65 or 70% of, of Wistia customers have a Wistia account and also use YouTube because mm-hmm. they're for different things. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize the number was that high until we ran a survey at some point. And I was like, okay, like this, there's a lot of people who have figured this out. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I think it's just telling more of those people's stories is probably the thing that, that makes this uh, easier to understand. Sure. Yeah, and there's always going to be more, more and more distractions. You mentioned it, alluded to it a little bit. What do you make of this whole Meerkat Periscope live stream Truman Show phenomenon that's taking place right now? Um, you know, I kind of think of it as like. Um, so I don't know if you've used Snapchat at all, but uh, yeah, I've messed my, around with it. Yeah. Yeah. So a bunch of my friends will use it, and I find Snapchat interesting because um, the things that mostly are being shared are like goofy, stupid things that you wouldn't actually send in a text message because it would be like stupid to send a crappy picture of your lunch, you know, with some weird emoticon to somebody in a text message. But it somehow makes sense in Snapchat because it's going to disappear. And I think that it's actually just a really, it's a way to show somebody something that's happening at that time. So it's hard to fake. And it also is a way to like build a connection with one other individual where you can basically say like, I'm thinking about you. Like, I kind of feel like that's what Snapchat is. Mm-hmm. For me, Meerkat is like losing the one-to-one element and proving the the crazy thing that's actually happening live, right? Like, same thing with Periscope. It's like, um, this. yes, I really am in a helicopter. Yes, I really am at like, you know, this party, whatever. Um, and I'm sure it'll be used for news. It'll be used for other things too. Um, but to me, it's just kind of that proof point of like the human connection that I can't fake or Photoshop what I'm doing right now. So isn't this interesting? Like I kind of feel like that's what it is. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because you wouldn't normally, 
you know, give a crap about my stroll through Whole Foods if I was just like with you. But if I put it on Meerkat, all of a sudden people are interested. I think maybe it just sort of plays into the the voyeuristic nature maybe of all of us. Like we're just curious when we're not around. Like, oh, this person's walking to work, um, you know, in Silicon Valley. I wonder what that looks like right now. Yeah. And you normally probably wouldn't even be interested in that in any other way. So it's almost like the vehicle itself creates the interest, which which I find uh, which I find super interesting. And uh, oh, oh, do you do you hear that noise, Chris? Do you know what that noise means? Oh boy! <laughs> oh man, I love making you know people uncomfortable. So, so obviously there was no noise, people. This is pre-production, but uh, the cheesy noise that you just heard comes in afterwards. And I told Chris to play along, so he did a real good job. He was a good sport. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, so we're having this daily ritual segment, and it's based off of the book by uh, Mason Curry. And in the book, he details you know, the, the processes and daily, you know, process of, of 300, like brilliant people, Benjamin Franklin, Jane Austen, Louis Armstrong, things like that. So I wanted to incorporate that sort of into this show to help, you know, humanize some of these people. Um, you know, Chris Savage isn't just a guy who walks in and goes to work every day and that's all he does. Um, so there's five categories in daily rituals in the book that they sort of use to define how, you know, say, uh, Louis Armstrong or Jerry Seinfeld spent their time. So I'm going to read you these five things, Chris, and I just want you to sort of, you know, tell us briefly um, how important it is to your day to day and how well you think you are at, for lack of a better word, performing, I guess, in that area. Sound good? Okay. Yep. Cool. So first up is sleep. Do you get a lot of sleep? Uh, or are you one of those guys that's just like burning the candle at both ends? Um, I would say it's very important, and I oscillate between getting a lot of sleep and doing a really great job of getting a lot of sleep and um, doing a horrific job. But it, I would say that it it goes in like probably you know multi month long segments. Um, so-, <laughs> so right now I'm doing doing a pretty good job. So you're doing a pretty good job. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The horrifically that, that that's, that's usually a bad time. I, I've had those too. And it's like, um, I, I found that keeping the phone out of the room, uh, I, I can't charge because the minute I go into one of those, I don't even know what you want to call it. It's not narc. It, 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 one of the, one of those where I can't sleep, I just check my phone yeah. and I'll go into yeah. Instagram and I'll fall into that rabbit hole of just, you know, yeah. So it's, it's a bad place, but anyway, we'll get off yeah. of there. Um, yeah. Second, <laughs> second area in daily ritual is creative work. So we yeah. kind of talked about this a little bit earlier. How much of your day do you really get to spend on that? And how important is it to you? Um, it's extremely important to me. Um, I, I wish I got to spend more of my time on it. I would say that probably mm, on average, probably like a third of my day is uh, devoted to in some way like helping make more creative work happen sure. or like being involved in something with the ideation of something. So you're the catalyst for a creative work. I mean, that's, that's almost more important. Uh, I don't know about that, but I, I, yeah, it is, it is very important to me. Like if I'm not being creative, if I'm not doing something new and pushing myself, um, I'm not happy. Cool. Um, administrative, I mean, you, you know, CEO, executive level, this sort of stuff sometimes comes to the territory. So how much of your job is sort of just administrative and, you know, business and, and business as usual day after day? Um, let's see. Uh, not that much. Um, probably fifteen percent of my day is administrative stuff. Oh, that's good. That's good news. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of people here who 
have do a lot of administrative stuff and mm-hmm. work really hard and give me that time. So I'm I'm very thankful to them. And this one's fun. Food and leisure. So how much of your time do you actually get to spend on yourself or uh, your wife and going out, having drinks, having food? How much? How important is that to you? And how much time do you actually get to devote to that? Um, it is very important to me. I mean, I, I guess I would throw like the working out in there um, in the leisure category. Uh, I would ahead. say – Don't jump ahead because exercise oh, is oh, the last one. <laughs> okay. I won't answer that then. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would say it's it's important to me. I try to like have time every night when I'm not working um, that like my wife and I will hang out and like watch a show or a chat or read together or something. Um, so that's very important to me. And lastly, exercise. I would say that's very important, extremely important. Um, I try to do something every day. Um, right now that's cycling between rock climbing at the gym, um, Going to uh, you know lift weights, going for runs, um, like lots of different stuff. Like I like variability, uh, and I just it always clears my head um, and relaxes me. Yeah, and Boston is such a great running city. I'm a big runner, so okay. Boston is such a beautiful running city by the Charles River. You guys have totally. such great terrain for that. So um, definitely jealous. I'm only two hours away, but I mean, we have some good terrain down here, very green in Connecticut, but very jealous of like the Charles River area. You guys have a lot of sweet places to, to go on long runs. Oh, totally. I did that this morning and it was amazing. It's nice. just totally beautiful. Awesome. Um, cool. So I'll have to contact Mason Curry and see if he'll put you in V2 of the book, you know, because uh, I think you'd fit right in there with Jane Austen and Louis Armstrong. And oh, those guys. I, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> last question. Last question. Yeah. Um, are you creatively satisfied? Um, I no, I'm not. I always, I always want to do more. Um, I, I'm like ext- I would, I'll answer this another way. I'm extremely satisfied with the creative work that I get to do, but I still want to do more. Great. And what, and what, what does that mean? Like, what's with the, What are you guys doing next? Um, there's a lot of different stuff, honestly. I, I, there, we've got our conference that's coming up. Um, and there's a lot of stuff with that. That's not like a normal conference. Um, if people are coming, they can decide if they want to go to a Red Sox game or go to boat tours and you know, all these other crazy things. And that makes me like really happy. Um, there's a lot of big product stuff that's coming out in the, in the next two to four weeks. Um, that is pretty different and pretty exciting. Um, there's a lot of marketing stuff that we're doing right now that is like totally new that I'm excited to share. Like once we make a little bit more progress on it, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, so I don't know, unfortunately I can't share most of it, but it is all very exciting. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, everybody should definitely check out Wistia Fest. Um, that's, uh, anytime you can, you can hang out with those guys. We've, uh, I bumped into, I've never bumped into you, Chris, but I bumped into a bunch of, uh, Wistia people at, uh, the inbound conferences the past couple of years. And uh, the Wistia party is always the most fun. So I don't know if it's the people, um, or just, uh, I don't know what it is, but the, whenever this past year at inbound, uh, geez, what year is it? Inbound 14. Um, I remember, I remember specifically a lot of people asking, does anybody know where the Wistia party is? What bar the Wistia party is at? And, uh, it was just from the year before that was, that was the one that was the most packed when it was on, uh, uh, you know, when it was near, uh, near the Heinz and, oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The one at the, um, 
Yeah, right on Boylston uh, Street. Yeah, I forget the yeah, name the of the place. The, the, it was like the Mexican cantina yeah. or whatever. <laughs> that w- yeah. It was so packed in there. So, uh, yeah, anytime you guys can hang out with, with people from Wistia, I definitely recommend listeners checking out Wistia Fest uh, 2015. Um, Chris, thank you so much for hanging out with me, man. It, this was a lot of fun. You're a super interesting guy. Love the product. Thanks so much for coming on here and uh, sharing uh, sharing a little bit about you. Uh, sure thing. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it was very fun. I hope I didn't um, go too far in my talking about my crazy things. So, uh, uh, but no, I'm probably just far enough. I think we're good. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> I think you're spot on. Uh, so okay, that's, perfect. <laughs> that's Chris Savage. I'm John Benini. This has been Louder Than Words. If you've enjoyed this episode, go ahead and subscribe, share it with your friends, write a review, whatever it is. Uh, and thank you for being here for episode two. And we will see you next time. <laughs>